Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. It was Thursday, November 20th, 1969. The Cincinnati Royals had just lost a home game the night before to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Royals lost by 13 points, which is not too embarrassing, but the Lakers were not even at full strength. They were missing Elgin Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain. Jerry West scored 32 to lead the way for the Lakers, and the Royals just could not keep pace. This was a Royals team that had Oscar Robertson as their starting point guard, but he could only do so much. The game left the Royals with a record of 6 wins against 11 losses. This was simply not getting it done. The head coach knew that his job was possibly at risk, and he needed to do something fast to turn things around. He decided that the team needed a new backup point guard to keep the offense running smoothly when Robertson was on the bench getting a rest. It turned out that there was a point guard available who was a multiple-time champion and a multiple-time all-star, but the point guard was 41 years old. That would be considered very old by modern NBA standards, but back in 1969, it was considered absolutely ancient. To make matters worse, the point guard had not played an NBA game in nearly seven years, but he would be in a strict backup role, so the team was not asking a lot in terms of minutes per game. So who was this head coach with the plan that only a madman could have come up with? The coach was Bob Cousy. And who was the point guard that he had in mind? Well, that was also Bob Cousy. He came to the conclusion that the best thing to turn around the Royal season was to come out of retirement and serve as the team's backup point guard. It did not work at all. This is the continuing story of Bob Cousy, and this is Basketball History 101. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you part two of our profile on the career and life of Bob Cousy. Last week, we covered his upbringing as the son of two French immigrants through his time as a player at the College of the Holy Cross. As a senior, he was one of the top five players in the entire country and a sure top pick in the 1950 NBA draft. Cousy was sure that he would be taken by the Celtics. He was a local player having played his college ball in the Boston area. He was also a first-team All-American, meaning that he was considered one of the top five players in the entire country. Surely the Celtics would want him, right? The Celtics actually had the first pick in the 1950 draft, and their brand new head coach, Red Auerbach, was going to take the opportunity to start building the best team he could. Back in that era, around 1950, the draft philosophy that most teams subscribed to was to draft a popular local player because he would bring with him a built-in fan base from his college days. That way, the team could sell more tickets to, essentially, the same local fan base. 
Auerbach rejected this philosophy. He believed that the best way to sell tickets in the NBA was to win, and win a lot. His philosophy was that winning sells more tickets than having a local player suit up. Auerbach's strategy was considered risky, especially in a league that was struggling financially. The NBA of 1950 was nowhere near the multi-billion dollar enterprise that it is today. Back in 1950, nearly every player had a summer job to help pay their bills. Nobody went to the NBA to become rich. In fact, for most players, the NBA paid less money than just getting a regular job as a salesperson or an accountant. A typical professional office job paid more than being an NBA player. So the Celtics owner, Walter Brown, believed in Auerbach and gave him the freedom to draft whoever he felt could best help the team. So the Celtics drafted Chuck Scher from Bowling Green University, and they drafted Scher for one reason. He was seven feet tall, and that was really hard to pass up, especially in 1950. As for Kuzi, he was taken with the fourth overall pick by the Tri-Cities Blackhawks, who are now known as the Atlanta Hawks. Anyway, they drafted Kuzi but were not that enamored with him. He was probably the most popular college player in the country, but many looked at his fancy dribbling and no-look passes as non-fundamental and too much of a showboat. But the Blackhawks figured that someone in the NBA would want that. Besides, they already had a point guard and only drafted Kuzi because of his perceived value in a trade. And trade him is what the Blackhawks did. They sent Kuzi and his draft rights to the Chicago Stags. The Stags were not really that interested in having him as a player either. But while the Stags were trying to figure out what to do with Kuzi, they completely went out of business and had to close down the team. Now, the NBA stepped in and had a random drawing to assign all of the players from the Stags to surviving teams. They literally put all the names in a hat and pulled them out to see where the Stag players would end up. In the end, Kuzi's draft rights were given to the Celtics. So that is how he ended up a Celtic. I actually provide a more detailed version of this story way back in episode 42. I talk about how nobody wanted Kuzi and how he bounced around several teams before landing with the Celtics. So check that out if you can. In any case, despite the fact that Red Arbach did not want Bob Cousy on his team, he ended up with Bob Cousy on his team. But I will give Arbach some credit. He kept an open mind about what Cousy could do. He invited Cousy to Celtics training camp in the fall of 1950. It was great for Cousy personally. He went to college in the Boston area so he would not have to move very far. He found a place near the college in the Boston suburbs. But now it was time for his first Celtics practice. Again, Kuzi was underestimated as I have already mentioned, Red Auerbach did not want him. It seemed that nobody in the NBA wanted him on their team. Sure, he was a great college player, I mean he was considered one of the top 5 players in the nation coming out of college that year, but his small stature gave NBA coaches the feeling that Kuzi's game could not translate to the speed and rigors of the NBA. So this is a good place to take a break, and I will be right back with the rest of Kuzi's story and what happened once he joined the Celtics for training camp. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. 
At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volpone, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go (laughs) ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story of Bob Cousy. As I mentioned just before the break, Cousy bounced around a number of teams before finally landing with the Celtics, a team that did not want him. He was in a situation where he would have to prove himself yet again, just like he did in high school and just like he did in college. It seems that proving himself is the running theme of his basketball career. Coaches would take one look at him and just figure that he was no good. But when it came down to it, Cousy could ball. Lack of confidence was not an issue for Bob Cousy. He was fully aware of what he brought to any team. Cousy knew how good he really was. In fact, by the end of that very first practice with the Celtics, Red Auerbach knew it too. Cousy was immediately made the Celtics' new starting point guard. Auerbach made this announcement after just one practice. Now came the start of the regular season. Cousy led the entire team in scoring in his very first game. Unfortunately, it was a 107-84 loss to the Fort Wayne Pistons. But Cousy was selected for the All-Star game in his rookie year. Not that many players in NBA history have been selected for the All-Star game as rookies. But Cousy was. By the mid-1950s, he was averaging 20 points and 9 assists per game. In 1957, he was awarded the league's MVP award. When a player wins the NBA's MVP award, that player is unofficially the best player in the world. Not bad for a player who could barely make his high school team and who could barely get into a game in college and who nobody in the NBA wanted when he was drafted in 1950. His entire career was overcoming the perception of others. He was the exact opposite of guys like Shaquille O'Neal, Wilt Chamberlain, and LeBron James who all had greatness predicted for them when they were still 15 and 16 years old. Cousy had to work for all of it and prove himself constantly. 
He went to the All-Star Game every single year that he played for the Celtics. He finally retired at the end of the 1963 season. By that time, he had won six NBA championships. I also want to provide a bit of context for that last statement. Yes, Kuzi won the championship six times, but all of them came after Bill Russell joined the team. And this is important. As basketball teammates, Kuzi and Bill Russell clicked like very few players do in the NBA. They were a perfect fit for each other. Prior to Bill Russell joining the team, the Celtics were weak on defense and rebounding. It seemed that they had everything else covered from shooting to passing and offensive cohesiveness. But what they really needed was someone who could challenge the other team on the defensive end. Back in 1956, Red Arbach told Kuzi that there was a kid playing in college out in California and if they could get him in the draft, he would solve all of the Celtics' problems. You can imagine that Kuzi was a bit skeptical, which is funny because so many people were skeptical of him. But once Bill Russell arrived, the team was transformed. They now had a defender and a rebounder who could start the fast break like virtually no one else in NBA history. He was blocking shots and grabbing defensive rebounds in bunches. Russell and Kuzi worked out a very simple system so that Russell knew exactly where Kuzi would be after the rebound. Russell would go up to grab the defensive rebound and he was all ready to begin turning by the time that he landed back on the floor. He would fire the outlet pass to the exact spot where Kuzi said he would be. The rest of the Celtics players were already sprinting down court like horses in the Kentucky Derby. Kuzi would receive the outlet pass from Russell, he would turn and fire the second pass to whichever Celtic was closest to the basket for an easy layup. They caught other teams by surprise. Teams were not used to an opponent who could go from defensive rebound to a layup in under four seconds. With Bill Russell, the Celtics ran other teams off the court. It took both Bill Russell and Bob Cousy to make it happen. Without Russell, the fast break never gets started in the first place. But without Bob Cousy, the assist pass would not be as consistent. As far as basketball was concerned, the combination of Russell and Cousy was a match made in heaven. They won six out of seven championships during their time as teammates. One of them was a black Louisiana kid raised in California by a widowed father. The other was a son of two French immigrants who were all too familiar with the horrors of World War I. These two players might as well have been from two different galaxies, but on the basketball court, it was pure magic. Their skill set complemented each other perfectly. Eventually, Cousy was hired as the head coach of the Cincinnati Royals, and that takes us back to the beginning of our episode to November of 1969. Cousy had been retired for nearly seven years and was 41 years old. That was when he decided that the best thing to turn around the season for the losing Royals was for Cousy himself to suit up and become the backup point guard. As I said at the top, it did not work. He coached half of the season in a uniform and warm-up suit, but he did not always sub himself into the game. The first time he did it was on November 21st, 1969 in a game against the Chicago Bulls. He played 10 minutes and made one basket and one free throw for a total of 3 points and 2 assists for the game. Two nights later, he played 7 minutes and recorded 0 points and 2 assists. By the time that January was over, he had given up on his experiment. He had played a total of 7 games over a month and a half, and he scored a total of 5 points and dished out 11 assists over those 7 games. For the first time in his entire basketball career, he was finally playing for a coach that truly believed in him because he was his own coach. 
all this experiment accomplished was to create resentment among the players. They all knew that Kuzi could not play anymore, and he was making a fool of himself getting out there as a 41-year-old player. His offensive skills were not terrible, but defensively, he could not keep up with the younger, taller, and bigger guards of the late 1960s. Kuzi was absolutely at the mercy of the man he was guarding. The team finished with a record of 36 and 46 that year. Kuzi kept his job as the coach, mostly because he had a guaranteed contract, so it did not make sense, financially speaking, for the Royals to fire him. After three years of coaching the team known as the Cincinnati Royals, he moved with the team when they became the Kansas City Omaha Kings. That was a bit of a fiasco as the team played 21 home games in Kansas City and 20 home games in Omaha as they tried to build their fan base in two different cities, and two different states for that matter. The two cities are over 200 miles away from each other, or a three-hour car drive. Mercifully, the Kings fired him early in his fifth season in 1973 when he had a 6-14 record. He never coached again. However, Red Auerbach got him a job as an announcer for Celtics games, and he held that job for decades. Today, he is 94 years old and still living in Worcester in the same house he bought upon his retirement from the Celtics. He has been a widower for years and rarely leaves the house except for his regular Thursday night dinner with some friends. Sadly, his generation is practically disappearing. He has been to more funerals for teammates and opponents than he would care to count. When you look back at his final season with the Celtics in 1963, the only surviving members of the team are Kuzi and Tom Sanders. Auerbach and all the rest of the players are now gone. When it comes to Kuzi's reputation, nobody considers him an underdog of any sort. It is hard for most to remember when Kuzi was considered a bust in the making. In my opinion, and in the opinion of many, he is one of the top 10 point guards of all time. If there is a lesson to learn here, for me and maybe for you too, it is to never give up. None of us can control when we are underestimated. We have no way of forcing people to evaluate us accurately based on one look. But what we can control is our effort. We can control how much we hustle and persevere. Over the years, I have proven a lot of people wrong about me, just like Bob Cousy did. He serves as an inspiration for me and hopefully for you too. Well, that does it for today. Join us next time when we share the story of the college recruitment of Wilt Chamberlain. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. 
Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.